Hi, everyone. This is Joan and Callie from Q&Abe, a podcast by President Lincoln's Cottage. As we talk to our guests about their expertise for the show, we sometimes end up with things that don't quite fit in the main episode, but we don't think that that should keep you all from hearing them. This bonus episode accompanies episode 5.2, How Fast Did Emancipation Happen? So if you haven't listened to that one yet, it might be a good place to start. As you probably already know, Juneteenth recently became a national holiday, celebrating the end of slavery. Greg Downs, one of the historians we spoke with for that episode, recounted for us other emancipation celebrations that you might not have heard of. So if Juneteenth is not the definitive end, are there other things that are celebrated as the ends in these local regional ways? And that's absolutely true, and something that people often, you know, have sort of only mild engagement with. The Coastal Carolinas Watch Night, which is pretty commonly celebrated, though not always in an emancipation context in some black communities, but in Coastal Carolina Watch Night of the 31st into December 31st into the 1st, which is tied to the celebration of the reading of the Emancipation Proclamation. And so that's a really powerful moment. In Tennessee and parts of Southern Kentucky, 8th of August is celebrated as an Emancipation Day because of ties to changes there. There's arguments that we should think about the Black celebrations of July 4th in Vicksburg, which of course is the day that Vicksburg surrenders to the U.S. during the Civil War as an Emancipation Day ceremony, including the fact that most white Vicksburgians don't participate in it until the 1950s. They also understand it as this this particular day, not just a generic national holiday. Memorial Day in Charleston in some ways is an Emancipation Day celebration. It, It helps to remind us in the big picture, slavery is a massive institution, four million people, largest capital input into the U.S. economy. And since we wanted to know about how fast things can happen, Brigadier General Leland Blanchard told us in more depth about how the National Guard's timeline for deployment works. So every National Guard has a full-time force. So there's always soldiers and airmen that are that are working. And from there, it becomes uh, a matter of, uh, it, I hate to say it, but it kind of depends, right? So think of it a couple of different ways. So we'll think of it as a planned operation. And when I say that, think of back in December, the president hosted the African Leaders Summit. That was a pre-planned, everyone knew that was happening. Uh, you got dignitaries coming in from around Africa, And so we work very closely with the local agencies. They give us a heads up. Hey, these are some of the things that we may need some assistance with. We kind of I'm oversimplifying it. Let's just suffice to say there's some there's some meetings that that occur, a lot of discussions. But but ultimately, it's really about trying to figure out how do we best serve the community, meet the needs uh, and make sure that the president in that particular case is going to have what, what he needs to, to host a very successful summit. You can even compare a hurricane, which is something you know that's coming. Let's say you're the governor of, of a coastal state. You're going to start looking at, hey, where is it going to land? Is it city? What, you know, what kind of challenges could that bring? What's the population center? What are some of the needs? And then the governor is going to sit down with his leadership team, and they're going to figure out, what level of response are we going to need? And then they'll call the National Guard. They'll call the adjutant general. They'll typically reach out to neighboring states. The neighboring states, of course, you're not going to want to pull from one state that's that's got a need that's, that's also going to be impacted by that storm. So you may reach out to a Nebraska or an Oklahoma, and they may send forces. So that's an example of, say, that's 
that's several days to a week or two weeks where people know know something bad is going to happen. If you contrast that to, again, an earthquake, there is absolutely no opportunity to sit down and plan. So you have this, you have this operation that then begins uh, to occur where you're doing the assessment as you're, as you're really responding. And so again, I would say it's, it's pretty awesome. The skills and the, the things that we can bring to that response, whether it is very short notice or whether you've got a, you know, several days to kind of plan through it. And then like anything else we do in the military, kind of like life, uh, the more time you got to plan for a vacation, the more detailed, you know, you're really going to be able to put together a good itinerary and you're going to know everything that you're going to do. The same is true of a response to an operation. The less time you have the plan, the more you're going to kind of work through and figure it out. And that's, that's where I go back to that training, the training to be comfortable being uncomfortable, because typically you're going to ask these young men and women to be out on the ground, figuring it out as they go along. We saw on 9-11, there were guardsmen who were at the Pentagon in their civilian job, working there as uh, government employees that were responding. Now, they didn't stop and put on a uniform, but I would say that that's the fabric of what a, what a citizen soldier is, is when they see a need, they go running to that point of need and they do their best to help their, their fellow citizens. And they just jump in. And from there, we kind of we kind of get get the machine going, if you will. And so there's a process. But I, I can tell you, if people work through it quickly. I never fail to be amazed by the things people will figure out when their community and when their nation is in need. I know I'm in awe of people who plan for disasters and really appreciate the work that goes into that kind of readiness. Thanks for listening. And please subscribe to stay up to date with the show. We'll see you again in a week with our next full episode. This episode was produced by me, Joan Cummins, with Callie Hawkins and support from the President Lincoln's Cottage team. Music for Q&Abe was written, performed, and is copyrighted by Clancy Newman. Q&Abe is made possible by listeners like you. You can support the show by joining Team Lincoln at www.lincolncottage.org, where you can also check out our other online and in-person programming. You can reach us at podcast at lincolncottage.org. President Lincoln's Cottage is a home for brave ideas. Stay curious.